Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. Today, we will embark on the role of art as a vision and as an expression in children diagnosed with cancer. When I was in medical school, I loved my pediatric rotations. And why? Most kids are healthy. Beyond the boo-boos managed by band-aids and cold symptoms managed with Vicks Vaporub, children usually do very well. When diagnosed with disease, they heal fast. They are honest and authentic, no pretense and no facade. Pediatrics was my chosen specialty at the time until I witnessed the impact of diseases like leukemia and other cancers, cerebral palsy, autism, Tourette's, and SIDS on parents, children, and myself that I decided at the time against a pediatric subspecialty. The realization that I myself was ill-prepared at the time to deal with disease states in children, I decided to choose an adult specialty. Later, as a parent, that experience resonated even more that I'd rather be the one to have the illness and not my child. Everyone will agree that children are special. What children go through in their minds may be different than adults. Expression of feelings may be a challenge to them. How and what can we offer then to our children to ease their pain, have them regain control, and express their emotions? It was what we will be talking about today. Art may be a nice avenue for expression of emotional conflicts, pain, and adaptation in health, disease, and healing. Communication through words may be challenging in children, especially going through traumatic experiences. With art, you get a glimpse on what's in their hearts and minds through this creative process. Art provides them an opportunity to escape from negative thoughts, distractions, coping skills, and self-expression. They put back control into their little hands and their expansive minds. Examples of art therapy may be role-playing, poem, essay writing, painting, or music, or doodling. We discussed the value of mindful doodling in our previous podcast. Art can help diagnose conditions in children because communication and expression are enhanced in ways that are hard to achieve with words. Let me invite you today through this journey in exploring how children uses art as an expression of their deep thoughts and emotions and as a service to others. We will explore how neurosurgeons can be artistic in shepherding children through their diagnosis and healing. How surgeons artistically explain complicated neurosurgical diagnosis and procedures to children and parents. 
we will expand our ways on how we as doctors can be supportive to children and their parents. I am joined today by Pio, a 10-year-old artistic child diagnosed with cordoma at the age of four, and by three surgeons, two neurosurgeons, Jay Nathan and David Perger from Stanford, and the cardiovascular surgeon, Dr. Arthur Gallo from the University of the Philippines, who is the chief medical officer for ABCs for Global Health. We will showcase masterpieces from Pio, our super guest today, from the Philippines and to the U.S. participants. Happy New Year to all of you. Good morning. Happy New Year. Dr. Gallo, who is our cardiovascular surgeon, the chief medical officer of ABCs for Global Health, which is a nonprofit organization in the U.S. and in the Philippines with the goal to help the underprivileged access healthcare. He will introduce Pio. Good morning from the Philippines. So in 2015, Aiden Pio Zepanta was said to be the youngest patient in the Philippines diagnosed with cordoma, a rare and incurable type of cancer. He was told that his cancer was uncommon. Today, Pio is one of the ambassadors of Brave Warrior Kids, his advocacy is to help children who are fighting cancer. As an artist whose passion is to paint, Pio has participated in four art exhibits in the Philippines and in the United States. In 2016 and 2017, Pio held his first solo exhibit at the Prism Art Gallery. Pio also loves to explore the solar system. He dreams of becoming an astronaut at NASA one day. Welcome, Pio. Pio, welcome. Yeah, it's uh, great to be here again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Pio. And I will introduce our two neurosurgeons, and then we'll get back with you, Pio. But welcome to the show. So first, Jay Nathan was one of my first educators for care students at Stanford University. I mentored Jay from the very first day of medical school at Stanford until he finished. He and Jocelyn Woodard joined me in my medical mission in the Philippines, in Pampanga, in 2012. I'm still looking at those pictures, Jay, and many of those patients that you saw regarded you as their doctor in the community at the time. So Jay then proceeded to do neurosurgical residency at the University of Michigan and a fellowship at Stanford University. On his spare time, one will see him flying his airplane. And after his fellowship in neurosurgery at Stanford, he started his neurosurgery practice in Indianapolis, Indiana. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. It's great to be here. And now David Perger, an MD-PhD, was born in the former Yugoslavia and grew up in the United States in the Washington, D.C. area. At Stanford Medical School, he was in my Educators for Care faculty family from the very first day to the finish line, just like Jay. He is currently doing his neurosurgery residency at Stanford, and last year, he did an infolded fellowship in stereotactic and functional neurosurgery which is the use of precision targeting techniques to deliver brain stimulation therapy to a very small target within the brain to help people with neurologic and psychiatric conditions. Welcome, David. Thank you, Dr. Gabriel. It's nice to be here. 
Thank you. And a question to you both. What inspired you to do neurosurgery? Thanks, Dr. Abiola. Growing up, I was always fascinated by the nervous system and what makes humans human and the unique capacity that we all have. And we see that in art. We see that in science and so many different things. As I was going through school and particularly in college, took more classes about neurobiology and neuroanatomy and just found it more and more fascinating. I also, even from a young age, enjoyed doing science by hand, was more of a hands-on person and enjoyed tinkering with things, seeing how things worked. And so it felt very natural to combine that interest in medicine and in neuroscience with doing surgery and being able to try to help restore quality of life and improve function for those who have conditions that impair it. To this day, it's still so gratifying to see patients where we can help restore part of their humanity that is lost, part of their quality of life that they can get back and they can enjoy. It's a long process, but I've enjoyed the process of learning that trade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Long training. I know there's a lot of postponement of gratifications is what we go through in medical school and then the residency and fellowship. How about you, David? For me, it was a lot of the same process as for Jay. I started college wanting to be a research scientist. I started off as a physics major, but realized I was not smart enough to be a physicist. But I had taken an AP psychology class in high school, and the part of that that fascinated me the most was the unit on learning about the biology of the nervous system. And so I switched my major to brain and cognitive sciences. And then kind of on a whim, I started volunteering for an ambulance service. And in the process of becoming an EMT, I fell in love with seeing patients and realized that I really enjoyed helping patients and their families get through high stress, high risk situations. So I decided to go to medical school. And when I combined my love and respect for neuroscience with my newfound enjoyment of seeing patients, the only thing that really made sense to me was neurosurgery. And I tried to keep an open mind throughout medical school, but I just kept coming back to neurosurgery. And I think beyond just the amazing technology we get to use, the very gratifying and rewarding feeling of being able to use our hands to help people in very profound ways. It's the connection that I saw neurosurgeons who I shadowed have with their patients. It's a lot of trust that patients have to give neurosurgeons in order to let them access the parts of their bodies that make them who they are and that make them think, feel, speak, and move. And the bond between a neurosurgeon and a patient was unlike any I had seen in any other specialty. And that really drew me to the field and keeps me really engaged and wanting to learn more and more about it every day. How about you, Dr. Gallio? I know you trained in cardiovascular surgery, long, long years of training. And now you're with us with ABCs for Global Health doing adult medicine. What inspired you to do cardiovascular surgery and what motivates you to do the transition from surgery to medicine? I really didn't know. And I was from medical school to going straight into cardiovascular surgery. It was a last minute decision for me. I really wanted to be a community doctor at that time, but I thought for myself, hmm, should I be doing this, just sitting in the clinics and the whole day, maybe I should do something else. Then I went into surgery and then I fell in love with cardiovascular surgery. Well, more on the thoracic surgery. Then something changed in me during that course. And then when I came back to Pampanga, I got introduced again to community medicine. Then this is, I think, what I love doing. 
I was really inspired by your story in moving back to community medicine that really showed your initial passion on serving the underprivileged in the community. Thank you for sharing all of your inspiration and we'll continue with our podcast. So we'll start with Pio. Pio, I really love your name. And what made you decide that that will be your name that you will be putting on your space, on your Facebook, on your Instagram, and you too? Well, first of all, Aegan means fire and Pio is surprise, surprise. Pagapilo from Petrochina. So when you put it all together, it translates to holy fire. It's a great combination of two great names. Yeah, I see that. And I really just like saying Pio. So I understand that you got diagnosed with cordoma at age four. Do you recall then at that tender age how it felt and what your symptoms were? Well, actually, I remember a good bit about my medical history. Some say I had cordoma since birth, but that's just a hypothesis. It's still not proven. But the time that I had major symptoms was three years old. I remember I had headaches during 3 a.m. in the early morning. And when that happened, I always cried for paracetamol because it's the only thing that stops the headache after that. I also had the slurring speech which that one was a bit of a hard time as well. Every time I would talk, my mommy and my Lola would say, again? So I had to repeat everything that I said a second time because of that annoying slurring of the speech. And the most impacting of all of the symptoms is the double vision. When mommy started thinking something is wrong, because there was one time when I got home from school, mommy and grandma, and I said, mommy, why are there two of you? Then mommy said, what are you saying? There's only one of me. Then I said, no, really, I see a second one of you. That's when my mommy started to be kind of hesitant of what I feel. So fast forward, we consulted to a lot of doctors. And as we were consulting more and more, that's when we thought of consulting to a real specialist which referred to another specialist, which was the one who said I needed an MRI. That was also the time when we consulted to Doc Gap, which the first two trials of me consulting to Doc Gap weren't very successful because 
he had a lot of patience at those times. When his secretary saw me for the third time, waiting for a long time, she said, oh, you can go first. I'm grateful for that time because despite me being a kid and there are more patients who really need him, I was the one who got first. Wow. So, David and Jay, is that common initial manifestations for chordoma? What is chordoma? Chordoma is a rare tumor that arises from a group of cells called the notochord, which during development, when you're still an embryo, helps to send signals to other cells to create the nervous system. It's actually a very rare kind of tumor, and it's even more rare in kids. Most people who end up diagnosed with chordoma end up being diagnosed with it later in life, in their 50s or 60s or beyond. And within the pediatric population, it's one of the rarest kind of tumors, actually. And the signs and symptoms pretty much depend on where the tumor shows up. So there's two classic locations. One is at the skull base, which means the area that's at the very bottom part of your skull. The areas that are in question here are the brainstem, which is just under the cerebrum and the cerebellum, the two biggest parts of the brain, and an area where a lot of nerves that control things like facial function and control of your eye movements and things like taste and your ability to swallow those nerves all come off of the brainstem. So that's one of the two main areas it can be. And the other one is down at the very bottom of the spine, a place called the sacrum, which is part of your hip bone in your pelvis. Depending on where the chordoma is, in the first or the second location, that determines the symptoms. So if the chordoma is at the skull base, a lot of the symptoms are usually the kinds of things that P.O. you just described. So headaches are very common and impairments in the function of those cranial nerves, the nerves that come off of the brainstem. So slurred speech is very common. Double vision is very common as well, along with things like trouble swallowing and trouble moving parts of your face. On the flip side, if the chordoma is down in the sacrum, then it can cause some pain in the legs and in the what we call the saddle region around your bottom. It can cause changes in sensation there, so numbness or tingling in that same area. It can cause difficulty moving the legs sometimes, and it can cause difficulty controlling your bowel and your bladder. So it all depends on where in the body it shows up. In the U.S., do we see a lot of chordoma, Jay, or also rare? We don't see a lot of it. As David mentioned, it is still overall a fairly rare tumor. Some estimates are about one in a million as far as how often it happens at least how many diagnoses we see each year. And one thing that is tough about chordomas is that they can't be diagnosed just off an image. So just off of an MRI, for example. As David mentioned, there's some classic locations for them. So if we see tumors in those locations, then it's on our list of possibilities. And we tend to think of it if we see in kind of that common appearance. But sometimes tumors don't always read the textbook, as we like to say. They don't always show up the way that we might expect them. So for example, I saw a patient a few weeks ago who is in her 50s and had a tumor that was in the upper part of her spine, not quite you know, close to the area that David mentioned as near the skull base, but not in kind of that classic spot. And no one expected it to be a chordoma until she had a biopsy and it was diagnosed. And that's the usual way of making the diagnosis is some type of surgery, either a biopsy or trying to take the tumor out. And then 
doing a variety of tests to make that diagnosis of a chordoma. Talking about sometimes us doctors questioning the diagnosis, right? Sometimes when it doesn't fit the symptoms or the history, then we explore more. Like I believe, Dr. Gallio, one of the times that you presented a case to me that was very, very interesting with unstable gait or discoordination. Could you talk a little bit more about that, Arthur? Yeah, this kid was an eight-year-old kid who was reportedly seen by his mom that he falls often. But he had one fall where they noted that he's have after the fall, he started having a steady gait. He's wobbly when he's standing up and his lower limbs are weak. So they brought him to the ER to have him evaluated. They did x-rays on him, which you have to clear them first if they have fractures, as trauma surgeons would do. But turns out the x-rays were clear, so the patient was sent home. But the mom noted that the weakness and the steady gait was still there. So they sought another doctor, and the patient was cleared again and sent home. The mom, who was still worrying about her child, decided to bring the child to us. We, as primary care physicians, we only have our history and physical examinations. So I had to do a more detailed history, a more detailed physical examination. I had to review my complete physical examinations from my med school books. Then noted that there was a clonus on both feet. That prompted me to refer the patient to a pediatric neurologist and a neurosurgeon. So months passed by, patient was worked up and mass of the thoracic spine through MRI. And the disease progressed, unfortunately, because of finances. It took them a while for the patient to get operated on. But now the patient is doing well, walking about and running around. So I know sometimes the diagnosis can be challenging, especially in the Philippines with lack of resources from diagnosis to treatment. I bet it was hard for Pio to get diagnosed initially because of those resources and how scary it must have been for you, Pio, during the time when you were experiencing your symptoms. How were you diagnosed? Do you remember that, Pio? Yeah, actually, you may think I was early diagnosed, but actually I was late diagnosed. Considering that I had symptoms when I was three years old and I was diagnosed at four. And when I was diagnosed, at first I had no idea what that is. I even said, oh, there's a mini solar system inside my head. That's just floating around. First, I didn't know much, but as I grew older, I gained more knowledge about it. And so, how did you feel at the time, Pio? And were you scared? How did you respond to this diagnosis? Weirdly enough, I was not at all scared. Maybe for the surgery, I was a bit scared. Although I wasn't scared at the time, considering the fact that I imagined it as a, as a mini solar system floating in my head. So what kind of surgery did they do at the time? Do you understand what the surgeons told you and your mom? At that time, Dr. Jack removed the whole cordoma because 
This time I will get better after, which I thought that that will be better for the rest of my life. But turns out, no, but I'm still amazed of what he has done because uh, despite that, he still took a piece of it off, which is a biopsy and decompression. So he kind of took a piece of it off and removed kind of like the hydrocephalus that it came with. How did you feel then? Well, when I was wheeled to the recovery room, I saw a bright light, which that bright light was just the light of the room. Because during the surgery, of course, I was asleep. But yeah, when I was wheeled to the recovery room, my eyes weren't used to the light. So I saw it as a very bright light. What did you think that bright light was? Well, I thought it was the sun. What are the challenges in terms of the diagnosis and treatment, Jay, David, in terms of dealing with cordoma? Well, one of the challenges is in trying to make the diagnosis, the biopsy itself, if you were to just do a biopsy, we have to be careful to avoid spreading the tumor to another location. So that's one risk of a biopsy surgery. One risk of trying to do a surgery to take the tumor out is these tumors are usually in very delicate locations. So especially the clival chordoma that Pio had, what the clivus, what that means, that's just the part of the skull base that David was talking about. And because the brainstem is close by, because the nerves are close by, it can be hard to access that area carefully. We don't want to cause harm in the process of doing surgery. So we have to avoid putting too much pressure on those areas. We worry about the risk of bleeding afterwards to those areas. And sometimes, depending on the location, we can't take the whole tumor out because the risk of injury is too high. And I'll turn it over to David to talk about some of the challenges kind of after surgery and other issues that can come up. Yeah, so like Jay mentioned, it's because of the dangerous location and the kind of high value real estate around some of these tumors that you can't always get all of the tumor out. And even when by the naked eye or even using a microscope, the surgeon believes that he or she did remove the whole tumor, it's often the case that there are microscopic you know, tumor cells that are still left in that area, which you can't really remove by hand. That's where radiation comes into play. So that's a, a core part of the treatment of chordoma is using uh, special techniques to deliver focused radiation to just the area where the tumor was and the immediate region around it in a way that can spare some of the other really important functions that are in that vicinity, such as the brainstem and the cranial nerves. Patients will generally get a course of radiation therapy after their initial surgery. And Pio mentioned hydrocephalus. I just want to bring that up quickly. Hydrocephalus is a condition where you can build up too much pressure of your cerebrospinal fluid or CSF inside the brain. The brain makes a normal amount of CSF every day, and it gets drained from these holes in the middle of the brain called the ventricles. Um, they're these fluid-filled cavities, and the CSF drains from the ventricles down into the spine, and it bathes the brain and the spinal cord and gives
gives it nutrients and helps protect it. But many of these tumors at the skull base around the brainstem, like uh, clival chordomas, like what Theo has, can create hydrocephalus because they block the normal drainage of the CSF coming out of the ventricles. And when that happens, the fluid pressure builds up and it can put a lot of pressure on the surrounding brain structures. This can cause symptoms like headaches, like nausea or vomiting, decreased levels of consciousness. So someone who is maybe difficult to wake up can sometimes cause seizures as well. That's another challenge that can happen either before surgery, sometimes even after surgery. And uh, Theo, I think you were mentioning to us that you had a surgery to help deal with the hydrocephalus. Is that right? Yes. So Theo, could you describe, do you remember what they told you about the surgery? I think you just got out of the surgery not too long ago, right? Because when I talked to you, you were still about to go for surgery and you agreed to the interview after your surgery. So could you tell us about the surgery? Yeah, actually, the first one of these two kinds of surgeries that were about the shine dates back to, this is one of my dark moments, but here it is. It was Christmas of 2019. I was very, very, very unconscious. And my mommy was about to feed me dinner when I didn't respond. I didn't even try to lift the spoon. So that means I was really unconscious then. And that's when mommy started to, again, hesitate what's going on with me. So she, along with Daddy rushed me to the PGH ER where they brought me up to the room and they added a device on me that is for emergency hydrocephalus. And I had to wait until December 27 for to arrive because we had a lot of things to take care of before and it was again not expected so that and the surgery was success like I came back my consciousness obviously (laughs) (laughs) and it was a very very big success the next one This one, I had milder symptoms. I didn't lose consciousness, but the most dramatic change was with my balance and my right leg because my balance was really, really off. When I stand, I need to transfer my weight to her just to stand on my own so it was really hard at that time and also plus my right leg at that time was really stiff like when I move it it moves in just one piece like I think that's what I mean it only moves in just one piece it doesn't bend or anything it just moves in one piece and after the surgery 
I was surprised because I can move my right foot again. And also I can bend my right leg again. A big success with the second shunt surgery. Wow. Theo, you had been through quite a bit. And thank you for sharing all of this to us from diagnosis, from symptoms to diagnosis, to the treatment that you've been going through. How do you cope with all of this stuff going on? I think it's all about what my hobbies are because I kind of just distract myself from all the hard times, kind of just divert the bad times into something that I can be creative about. Like a couple of my hobbies are painting, which I sell paintings for my medical funds. And I also make the solar system in a clay. Sometimes I make two sets every day, but the average is one set per day. I also do mindfulness in both morning and evening. And I also like reading PDF files about space. And there is also one time that I had piano lessons, so there was a time when I actually played the piano. And last but not the least, of course, I like doing Minecraft. And Minecraft is a bit unique because instead of houses like the norm would be in Minecraft, I've done, surprise, surprise, a lot of solar systems in Minecraft. Wow. You have this art space that you create a lot of art, you paint, and that helps support the medical bills that you guys always confront, right? It's very expensive there in the Philippines. And in the Philippines, we don't have like the insurance coverage that we have here in the U.S. So how could we help you? Could you show us your art? Oh, yeah. You can see when almost all of my artwork in Facebook, Instagram, and also I have a YouTube account. My YouTube account first is Theo Space, then the word space. Then next is my Instagram, which is Theo. And lastly is my Facebook, which is Aiden Pierce Fight with Dan Common. There you can see all of my content because I post mostly in Facebook and Instagram. I don't know which is the most, but definitely I post the most in Facebook and Instagram. We will follow those Pio online so we could help you. But would you want to show us your art and turn off your Zoom background so we could see your art? Here are some of these artworks. This is Jupiter, this one, um, the Aphrodite, and he also makes doodles. So this one is his doodle of himself and his favorite Filipino foods. And here's a solar system artwork he made when he was six years old. 
And these are all seen on this Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook channel, right, Pio? Yeah. Okay, we'll follow that. So I believe that you mentioned Dr. Gallo when he introduced you. He said that you also belong to the Brave Warriors. Could you tell me what that club is and what you do there and who are the members? A group of interested kids. Yeah, most of them are Filipino. And unlike me, they have somewhat curable cancer. But I just thought that I can kind of blend in. So... Yeah, I joined, and sadly, some of them already died, but still, we're a big team because we still have 20 plus kids. The founder is Tito Noel. He's one of my great friends who also helped me as well in my battle against Cordoma. When you hear something like this, Pio, like some of the members of that organization have already died, how does that feel to you? It's both happy and sad. Let's start with the sad. Sad because, of course, they're not in this, well, they're still on Earth, but in a different part. And like, they're not in the ground anymore. They're not with uh, us. Like the saying that there's a land of the living and land of the dead. So they're not in the land of the living anymore. And that brings me to the happy part. It's also happy because they're up there in heaven. I still believe in the saying that when you die, you go to heaven. So, yeah, I just think that they're already in heaven and God is taking care of them. And they're much, 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 much more safer there than they are here on the ground. David, Jay, I know you guys deal with a lot of trauma, cancer, tumors, things that you may or may not be able to help. How do you deal with this on a day-to-day basis? It can be tough a lot of times to be able to accept that there are situations where we either can't help or we can't fix the problem. Obviously, we went into this profession to help people, to ideally cure them, to get them back to normal. And over time, with a lot of research, a lot of training, a lot of technology, we can do more and more, which is great, which is very encouraging. We try to take comfort in the victories that we can have and try to cherish those with patients and their families. But in those sad instances when maybe we can't help or there's a disease or a trauma that's too severe. I think it's important that we're honest with patients, honest with their families about what we can do, what the goals of additional treatment are, that we really try to understand the patient as a person and what their hopes and goals are for their care, because we want to be partners with them and their family in that process. And maybe that 
doesn't mean doing a surgery. And maybe that means just listening and trying to provide comfort and trying to provide information. I agree. And I think that's one of the most important parts of our job is beyond all the amazing things that we can do to try and help is A, like Jay said, to recognize when it's just not possible or it would do more harm than good. And B, to really take that time to sit with the families and and bring them through this really, really difficult process and help them to understand what is going to happen and help connect them to resources to try and cope with it somehow. I think throughout my training, it's been definitely one of the more difficult things, but it's also one of the most rewarding aspects of the job because you know that you've been there at a time when they might not have anyone else to be there for them in that way. And you've helped make that transition ever so slightly more tolerable and hopefully helped them begin on a path towards some sort of closure as well. We're about to the end of the podcast, and I really would like to invite the audience to visit Pio's face, and it's on facebook.com slash Aiden, A-E-D-A-N, Pio, P-I-O, and it's Aiden's Pio's fight with the uncommon because he is one of those children or people with uncommon illness. So let's help Pio. I really want to thank you all. I would like us to all give us a take-home point for our listeners about how kids, children cope with cancer. I think Dr. Gabiola, you mentioned in the beginning that art was a really important method for kids to express the way that they're thinking and feeling about something that's really difficult like cancer. And I just want to underline that in my pediatric neurosurgery rotation at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital next to Stanford, that hospital is really well known for bringing all sorts of different modalities of therapy to help kids in this situation. And like you mentioned, it's not just art, it can be through music, it can be through acting and role playing. And for me, the take home message was that at the end of the day, Kids still have to be kids, and we can somehow combine the strategies to help cope with some of these things with play, with music and art, things that kids would normally do. I think that's a way that we can help connect to them as adults, and especially as nurses and physicians who are used to using big medical technical terms and really presenting all the data and then leaving the room. But I think with those different types of ways to engage with kids and their families, we can make that connection a little bit stronger, and we can help kids to be who they are through this whole process and try and cope with difficult situations in that way. I agree. I agree, Dayton. I agree completely. I think um, a big theme I've seen over and over is that kids have tremendous capacity and I think greater capacity to kind of understand and to have wisdom than sometimes we adults give them credit for. I think Pio is really an example of that. And, you know, I think Pio, you have amazing wisdom for your age, but kids also have tremendous emotional capacity in terms of being genuine and honest and connecting. And so I think that that's important as physicians to be honest with them and to share information and to both with them and their parents, not to assume that they don't understand or they don't know the gravity of the situation or can't weigh different options to be part of that conversation. I think it's very important to include them. And I'll just end with an anecdote about there's a famous neurosurgeon who since passed away, but he was being interviewed about memorable cases and he was trying to treat a five-year-old for a very complicated tumor and condition and felt really a lot of grief in the clinic visit with the child that he couldn't help them and that surgery wouldn't be safe. The child actually comforted the surgeon 
and said, it's okay. And so I think that's very powerful and illustrates that. Thank you for sharing that, Jay. Arthur? I agree with both of them. We try to make it as normal as possible that we can and to make sure kids have to be kids. And one thing that I knew during my training in surgery is that honesty is really appreciated by patients, honesty. And just like Theo, with his art, medicine itself is an art. <laughs> That's why our first subject in medical school is the art of medicine. It's really an art on how you disclose the bad news. Not all can do that gracefully. But when we deliver bad news, we also have to be with our patients throughout, through treatment and through recovery. And even when they don't turn out well, we have to be with them all the time. And sometimes we are surprised by the responses of our patients. And one of the experiences that I had is if the family has seen how you took care of their sibling, their parent, or their child, they would be appreciative of that even if that patient passed. They would say, thank you, doctor, for taking care. Thank you, doctor, for making time. It really boils down into it being an art form in itself. Thank you, Arthur. Pio. I would say as well, I think art, humans, and other species or creatures on the earth are all interconnected because I observed that my cordoma is kind of similar to the weeds of a plant. A plant, when it, when it overgrows, gets weeds. And the weeds represent kind of like cordoma and the plant itself or well the stem kind of represents the brain stem and the flower or whatever is on the top is the brain itself the roots are the nerves and the only way to remove the weeds without contaminating other species of grass and plants is by cutting it and that is what represents surgery so it's amazing how in this planet of ours everything is interconnected in a very like connected way Thank you so much, Pio. That was very, very powerful. I remembered what happens in children's mind when my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and my kids were only eight and nine years old. And my nine-year-old asked me out of the blue, I don't really know where it came from. And he asked me, mom, how long did the doctors give dad? I mean, for someone who was nine years old and asked me that question, I just basically broke down. I just couldn't imagine what goes in the children's brain when we're confronted with something like that. We thought that as adults, and for me specifically, I'm a doctor, that I should know that. But we're all humans. We learn from each other. You're right. The species are all interconnected, and we fail to appreciate that. Thank you for inspiring the with that analogy that you just created. That is so phenomenal. Thank you all for this podcast and appreciate your time. And with that, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. Dr. Gabriel, Happy New Year. 
Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.